Hello, my name is Dr. Patrick Wen, and I'm a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Center for Neuro-Oncology at the Dana-Farber Brigham Women's Cancer Center. I would like to welcome you to this program on recurrent glioblastoma, current obstacles, and future directions in care. This activity is jointly sponsored by Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Robert Michael Educational Institute and supported by EMD Serono. My disclosures include research support by Boehringer Ingelheim, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Esai, Exelixis, Genentech, Merck, and Novartis, and I'm on the advisory board for Arc Therapeutics, Agius, Genzyme, Novartis, and Mclone. I will be discussing drugs that are unlabeled or used for investigational purposes, including sidirinib and XL184. As background, it's estimated that each year there are about 60,000 new cases of primary brain tumors in the United States. About a third of these are malignant, and most of them are malignant gliomas. In terms of the malignant gliomas, about half of them are glioblastomas at diagnosis. The lower-grade tumors seen on the left side of this slide over time increase in tumor grade, and many of them become glioblastomas. That is why there's so much focus on finding more effective therapies for glioblastomas. This slide shows the prognosis for these patients. The WHO classified gliomas into four histologic grades. Grade 1 tumors are pilocytic astrocytomas. These are usually in children, and if completely resected, are potentially curable. Grade 2 gliomas have a median survival ranging from 3 years to over 10 years. Grade 3 anaplastic gliomas have a survival ranging from 2 to 6 years. And grade 4 gliomas, glioblastomas, have an average survival of about 15 months. This next slide shows the characteristic histologic appearance of glioblastoma with a pseudopalisading necrosis and the endothelial proliferation. In addition, these tumors have high cellularity, pleomorphism, and, and mitosis. In this talk, I will outline the standard therapies, and then in the second part, I will focus on novel therapies, including overcoming temozolomide resistance, improving drug delivery across the blood-brain barrier, targeted molecular therapies, inhibitors of angiogenesis, as well as some miscellaneous therapies, including inhibitors of stem cells. So first, I'll talk about the standard therapies for glioblastomas. Any tumor, the first therapy involves surgical resection. This removes mass effect and improves symptoms. And importantly, it provides tissue for diagnosis and for molecular studies. And also, it improves survival, although this benefit is modest in the order of a couple of months. There are a number of new modalities that help neurosurgeons improve the safety of surgery, including the interoperative MRI, as shown in this Amigo suite displayed on this slide. There are other strategies to improve the safety of surgery, including functional imaging, interoperative mapping, and tractography. The most important treatment for glioblastoma is radiation therapy. This prolongs survival to about 12 months. Normally, radiation is given to the T2 or flare area of abnormality plus a 2-centimeter margin. The standard dose is 6,000 centigrade and 200 centigrade fractions. The treatment is usually over six weeks. Unfortunately, you can't give enough radiation therapy to kill every tumor cell, and the majority of patients, 80 to 90% of them, will recur within the primary site. 
Because of this, there's been a lot of interest in trying to increase the dose of radiation to the tumor site using strategies such as stereotactic radiosurgery shown on this slide. Unfortunately, the phase three trials that have been done using radiosurgery in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastomas, such as this RTOG study 9305, shows that radiosurgery produces no benefit. So in glioblastoma patients, radiosurgery should really not be used at all or only in very selected cases or as part of a, a trial. The third treatment modality is chemotherapy. The standard drug is temozolomide. This is an oral alkylating agent that has excellent bioavailability. The CSF levels are approximately 20 to 30% of plasma levels. In a pivotal trial conducted by the EORTC and the NCI of Canada, published in the New England Journal in 2005, Patients with newly diagnosed glioblastomas were randomized to radiation alone or radiation with concomitant temozolomide at 75 milligrams per meter squared daily for six weeks, followed by six cycles of adjuvant temozolomide at 150 to 200 milligrams per meter squared for five days each month. This was the first trial that produced a positive result. The median survival was increased with the use of temozolomide from 12.1 to 14.6 months and the two-year survival was increased from 10% to 26%. In an update of this study published in Lancet Oncology in 2009, the four-year survival for patients receiving temozolomide was 12% compared to 3% for patients receiving radiation alone. An important part of this study was the evaluation of the MGMT status. MGMT, methylguanine methyltransferase, is a DNA repair enzyme. When this is present in tumor cells, the tumors are resistant to the effects of temozolomide or other alkylating agents. If the promoter for the gene for MGMT is methylated, the gene is silenced and the tumor cells do not express MGMT, these tumor cells should be more sensitive to temozolomide. As part of the EORTC NCIC study, tumor specimens were obtained from these patients and analyzed for their MGMT methylation status. And as this next slide shows, those patients whose tumors had a methylated MGMT, so the tumors did not have this repair enzyme, did significantly better than those patients who had an unmethylated MGMT promoter and whose tumor cells expressed this repair enzyme. Based on this, there has been a large phase three study conducted by the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group, RTOG0525, in which patients with newly diagnosed glioblastomas received radiation therapy with concomitant temozolomide, followed either by the standard five days a month regimen of temozolomide or a dose-intense regimen of temozolomide with a drug administered for three weeks on, one week off, in the hopes of depleting MGMT levels in tumor cells. This trial has completed accrual and the results will be known uh, next year. With radiation therapy and temozolomide, at a median of 6.9 months, patients recur. And when patients recur, the six-month progression-free survival is only 9 to 16%. The six-month PFS is the percentage of patients who are alive and whose tumors are not growing at six months. And this number is only 9 to 16% for most uh, therapies that are inactive. And this is a benchmark against which all the other trials that I'll talk about later will be compared to.
This slide just summarizes the data from the various cooperative groups showing the six-month PFS ranging from 9 to 16 percent. And for the control arm of lomistine in some trials, the six-month PFS is about 19 percent. One issue that has arisen in this era of radiation therapy with temozolomide is the phenomenon of pseudoprogression. Normally, patients get their first post-radiation MRI scan about four weeks following completion of treatment. And in 30 to 40% of patients, the scan will be worse. Half the time, it's worse because of tumor progression, but half the time, it's worse because of radiation effects, so-called pseudoprogression. This next slide illustrates a patient with pseudoprogression before radiation. The next panel shows worsening of the tumor four weeks after radiation therapy, raising the possibility of progressive disease. However, this patient was doing very well, and we decided to continue treatment with standard temozolomide. And you can see the scan eight weeks later, showing no worsening. And then by six months, there was significant reduction in tumor size, suggesting that the initial worsening was pseudoprogression, a radiation effect, and not true tumor progression. Currently, it's very difficult to separate pseudoprogression from real tumor progression. The MRIs look the same, and modalities such as PET scans are not useful. One thing that might be useful is the tumor MGMT status. In this study by Brandis and colleagues published in JCO in 2008, those patients who had pseudoprogression were much more likely to have a methylated MGMT promoter than those patients with an unmethylated MGMT promoter. And conversely, those patients who had true tumor progression were much more likely to have an unmethylated MGMT promoter. These tumors would have MGMT and would be resistant to temozolomide, so it, so it would make sense. There's been a search for imaging techniques that might differentiate pseudoprogression from real tumor progression. One modality that is being investigated is perfusion MRI. This looks at the cerebral blood volume. And in this slide, in the top panel, you see increased cerebral blood volume in patients who had recurrent tumor compared to patients with pseudoprogression in the middle panel, where the cerebral blood volume is not increased. This might be a useful way to differentiate pseudoprogression from real tumor progression, although other studies will be needed. When patients recur after standard therapy, there are a number of treatment options. These include reoperation, implantation of biodegradable polymers, with carmustin, re-irradiation, various standard chemotherapy regimens, including dose-dense temozolomide, nitrosoureas, and other agents such as carboplatin, irinotecan, and etoposide, and bevacizumab. This slide shows patient uh, having surgery in which these white carmustin implants are placed in the surgical bed. These contain carmustin, which leaches out over the next few weeks. Patients with recurring glioblastoma, the implantation of these wafers increases survival by about eight weeks, and this modality is FDA-approved. Another treatment modality that is often used is stereotactic radiosurgery in an attempt to increase the radiation dose to the recurrent tumor. Unfortunately, radiosurgery alone is rarely effective. However, there was a recent study from Memorial Sloan Kettering in which patients with recurrent glioblastomas were treated with hypofractionated radiotherapy together with bevacizumab, the humanized monoclonal antibody against VEGF. So with this regimen, they had a high response rate of 50% and a PFS6 of 65% compared to 
historic controls of 9 to 16% for ineffective therapy. So this suggests that in, in these selected patients, combination of bevacizumab and hypofractionated radiation therapy may be a useful strategy. And a number of studies are looking at this in more detail. There are a number of novel therapies that are also being studied for recurrent glioblastomas. These include various strategies to overcome temozolomide resistance, different approaches to bypass the blood-brain barrier, targeted molecular therapies, antiangiogenic therapies, stem cell therapies, as well as some other ones. I'll discuss briefly various strategies to overcome resistance to temozolomide. As we reviewed earlier, glioblastomas often express MGMT that results in resistance to temozolomide. In preclinical studies, continuous exposure of the tumor cells to temozolomide can deplete cellular MGMT levels and potentially render the cells more sensitive to the chemotherapy. Based on this, there have been a number of studies looking at dose-dense temozolomide regimens. Instead of the five days every month regimen, these regimens include one week on, one week off, three weeks on, one week off, or continuous dosing using 50 milligrams per meter squared daily. These regimens result in an increased dose intensity ranging from 1.4 to 2.1 times the standard regimen, but also potentially depletes the MGMT levels within the tumor cells and increase the sensitivity of these cells to temozolomide. In a study by Perry and his colleagues from Canada, the so-called rescue study, Patients with glioblastoma and high-grade and anaplastic gliomas at first recurrence were treated with temozolomide using a continuous regimen of 50 milligrams per meter squared daily. The results of this study were published earlier this year in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and showed some promising results. The most promising group were those patients who had completed adjuvant temozolomide and had a break. When their tumor recurred and they were retreated with continuous dose-dense temozolomide, there was a 30.4% six-month progression-free survival, which is significantly better than the 9 to 16% from historic control. Another important issue in treating patients with glioblastoma is the blood-brain barrier. This prevents many active agents from reaching the tumor and is a major cause of the failure of so many prior therapies. One strategy to overcome this is to put in catheters around the tumor cavity and infuse drugs over several days using a technique called convection-enhanced delivery. Various immunotoxins have been delivered using this mechanism. The preliminary studies have not been successful, but this approach continues to be evaluated. Another strategy is to engineer drugs that can pass through the blood-brain barrier. One drug that is being evaluated is a drug called ANG1005 in which paclitaxel is attached to a peptide, and this allows it to be transported across the blood-brain barrier and potentially achieve higher levels in the tumor. These studies are ongoing. The major focus, however, for patients for recurrent glioblastomas is the use of targeted molecular therapies. Over the past few years, we have a much better understanding of the molecular pathways involved in glioblastomas. Glioblastomas have traditionally been divided into two groups. The first group are primary glioblastomas. This makes up the majority of the patients, about 90%, and these patients tend to be older. These patients from day one have a glioblastoma. 
So sometimes they'll have an MRI scan a few months previously for a headache, which is completely normal. And then they'll present with a seizure. and The scan will show a typical enhancing mass. These patients usually have amplification or mutation of the epidermal growth factor receptor and loss of the tumor suppressor gene P10. There is a second group of glioblastoma called secondary glioblastoma. This makes up only 5 to 10% of the total. These are usually in younger patients, and these tumors progress through grade 2 glioma to a grade 3 glioma to a glioblastoma. The molecular changes in these tumors are different. These tumors usually have mutations in P53 and amplification of the platelet-derived growth factor. Recently, the Cancer Genome Atlas Project has improved our understanding of the molecular pathways important in glioblastoma. In addition to confirming the importance of amplification and mutation of the epidermal growth factor receptor and loss of P10, it's also identified mutations in HER2 and in NF1. In addition, it has confirmed the importance of abnormalities in the P53 signaling pathway than abnormal in 87% of patients, as well as in the retinal blastoma signaling pathway, which is abnormal in 78% of patients. More recently, further analysis of the TCGA data set has allowed glioblastomas to be divided into four groups based on expression profiling. These groups are the proneural group, neural, classical, and mesenchymal. And it's been possible to match these groups with some of the genotyping changes. So, for instance, the proneural group have mutations in 53 and PDGF receptors, as well as IDH1 mutations, which I'll talk about in a moment, whereas the classical group will have mutations in EGFR. One of the major developments in understanding the molecular pathogenesis of gliomas has been the identification of IDH1 and 2 mutations. These are isocitrate dehydrogenase 1 and 2 mutations in these tumors. In a study published in Science in 2008, Parsons and his colleagues from Johns Hopkins, in a study involving deep sequencing of glioblastomas, found for the first time that 11% of glioblastomas had IDH1 mutations. Subsequently, in an expanded number of tumor samples from a study from Duke by Yan and colleagues published in the New England Journal, they found that 70 to 80% of all grade 2 gliomas, both astrocytomas and oligodendrogliomas, as well as virtually all secondary glioblastomas, had these IDH mutations. These IDH mutations have important implications. In this slide, it shows that glioblastomas that have IDH mutations have a median survival of 31 months compared to 15 months for those that don't. And similarly, the prognosis is much better for those patients with anaplastic astrocytomas than those who don't have these mutations. So IDH mutations are important prognostic factors. Under normal circumstances, IDH1 in the cytoplasm converts isocitrate alpha-ketoglutarate with a generation of NADPH. When IDH mutations are present, instead of converting isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, alpha-ketoglutarate is converted to 2-hydroxyglutarate a so-called oncometabolite that accumulates in tumor cells and gives rise to these tumors through a still undefined mechanism. The importance of these mutations is not only that they're important prognostic factors, but 
are potentially targets of drug therapy. And a number of companies are developing drugs that target these IDH mutations. This slide summarizes the major molecular pathways involved in glioblastoma and the drugs that have been tested. Unfortunately, with the exception of bevacizumab, almost all the agents tested here have been inactive. And there are a number of reasons for this. One, as we discussed earlier, is the difficulty of getting drugs across the blood-brain barrier. And so there has been a shift in the paradigm in testing drugs for glioblastomas. In the past, many drugs were tested without clear understanding of whether the drug gets across the blood-brain barrier into the tumor. So now when a drug is being tested, if it's not clear that the drug clearly gets through the blood-brain barrier, as an early stage in the testing of the drug, patients with recurrent tumors that need surgery will be treated with a drug for a week or so, and then at surgery, the tumor will be removed and analyzed for drug levels to see whether therapeutic concentrations are achieved within the tumor, and also to see if the molecular pathways that are targeted are inhibited. If the drug doesn't get in sufficiently and the pathways are not inhibited, then it's probably not a useful drug to test glioblastoma patients. Another reason for the failure of prior therapies is the redundancy in the signaling pathways, so that if one signaling pathway is inhibited, the tumor could still grow through signaling through other pathways. There is also coactivation of multiple tyrosine kinase receptors. In this study by Jane Stommel and her colleagues, they used a phosphoantibody array to look at 42 tyrosine kinase receptors at one time. And what they found in glioblastoma, in contrast to chronic myelogenous leukemia or GIST or some lung cancers, is that no tumor had only one receptor turned on. At a minimum, some of them had three receptors turned on, and some patients had even 11 receptors turned on. Given such a situation, you can imagine that it would be very hard for a a drug that targets one receptor to have any significant activity. And it's likely that you would need drugs that target multiple receptors or combinations of drugs to be helpful. So it's clear that single agents are likely to have only modest activity. We'll need drugs that hit multiple targets, or we need drugs that can be combined either with each other or with radiation therapy or chemotherapy, or perhaps with stem cells. And we need to find drugs that inhibit final common signaling pathway. Most tyrosine kinase receptors signal through the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway. And there are now a number of PI3 kinase inhibitors that are in trials for glioblastoma, including drugs such as XL765, XL147, and BKM120. There are also drugs that inhibit AKT, such as MK2206. And so these drugs are potentially more promising. Even if they don't have activity on their own, combination of drugs that inhibit this pathway with drugs, for instance, MEK inhibitors, might be a good thing. There's also a lot of research in drugs that inhibit the CDK4-6 pathway. This is often abnormal in glioblastoma, and there are now emerging studies suggesting that CDK4-6 inhibitors may have activity in clinical trials in glioblastoma patients using these types of inhibitors are in progress. One major area that neuro-oncology lags behind many other cancers 
is the ability to treat the patient's molecular changes with a specific drug in the way that imatinib is used for BCR-ABLE or EGFR inhibitors are used in lung cancer patients with the EGFR mutation. What we would really like to do is to be able to genotype the patient and find the set of activated kinase and pathways that drive that patient's tumor and treat them with drugs that are specific for those targets. But in neuro-oncology, it's been very difficult to have this happen. In this past year, um, a consortium was established by the IV Foundation in which patients at these institutions will have their tumor genotype. There would be a virtual pool of patients where we know the genotype, and the hope is that we can funnel them into trials for drugs that are specific for their molecular changes. And hopefully by doing trials in this way, will be more successful and lead to advances more rapidly. Another problem is that with the increasing number of drugs available and the increasing number of combinations, there are millions, if not hundreds of millions of potential combinations. And it's impossible to do all these trials. So what we need also is to find ways to do trials more efficiently, to eliminate rapidly the treatments that are ineffective, to test multiple combinations simultaneously and have a shorter path to definitive testing. There are a number of novel trial designs that are being studied to try and achieve these aims. These include pick-the-winner design, sequential accrual for phase one and two studies, factorial design, adaptive randomization, and others. And some of these designs are now being incorporated into glioblastoma trials. Another area that has received significant focus is the issue of glioblastoma stem cells. In all our brains, we have normal neurostem cells. These are located especially in the subventricular zone along the lateral walls of the lateral ventricles, as well as in the dentate gyrus in the temporal lobes. And these normal neurostem cells gives rise to glia and neurons. Under certain circumstances, these normal neurostem cells develop mutations and are transformed into tumor stem cells or tumor progenitor cells. And these tumor cells develop into glioblastoma. It's become clear that these tumor stem cells are very hard to treat. So if a patient with a glioblastoma is treated with radiation and chemotherapy, many of the tumor cells may be killed off, but the stem cells remain. And eventually, they repopulate the tumor, and the tumor recurs. So if we're ever going to cure a patient with glioblastoma, we're going to have to kill these stem cells in addition to the tumor cells. As a result of this, there has been tremendous interest in understanding the molecular pathways that lead to the development of these tumor stem cells. This next slide shows some of the more important pathways, including the notch signaling pathway, the sonic hedgehog pathway, as well as others. The notch signaling pathway has been an important focus in glioblastomas. This pathway is also important in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And so as a result, a number of gamma sequitase inhibitors that inhibit this pathway have been developed for Alzheimer's disease and are now being used in glioblastoma patients. Two of the gamma sequitase inhibitors in clinical trials are shown here, and there are a number of others that are being developed. Another important pathway is the sonic hedgehog pathway. A number of drugs have been developed against smoothens, which is a critical component of this pathway. And one of these shown here is in clinical trials in glioblastoma. The 
Sony Hedgehog pathway is also important in other types of brain tumors, including medulloblastomas. This slide shows a patient with metastatic medulloblastoma. This is a PET scan showing disease throughout the patient's body. This patient had a patch mutation and was treated with a smoothened inhibitor that inhibits this pathway. And as you can see in the middle panel, there was a dramatic response, at least for a period of time, in this patient, providing some evidence that inhibiting these stem cells can be a good thing. As we understand glioblastoma stem cells, however, the story has become more complicated. And there is increasing evidence that tumor cells themselves can de-differentiate back into stem cells. And so it isn't a simple story of just killing the stem cells so the tumors won't develop. You'll have to kill both the stem cells and the tumor cells. Because if you have residual tumor cells, these tumor cells can become stem cells and the cycle perpetuates itself. So if we're ever going to cure glioblastomas, therapies will have to target both the glioblastoma stem cells and the glioblastoma tumor cells. In the final part of this talk, I'm going to focus on inhibition of angiogenesis, which is one area where there has been real progress in the treatment of glioblastoma. The next slide shows endothelial proliferation, which is one of the pathologic hallmarks of glioblastoma. These tumors are some of the most vascular tumors in the body. And for a long time, there has been significant interest in inhibiting angiogenesis in these tumors. These tumors produce angiogenesis primarily through the VEGF pathway. But as this slide shows, a number of other pathways are also important, including angiopoietins, platelet-derived growth factor, fibroblast growth factor, the NOTCH pathway, integrins, as well as others. There is also increasing evidence that glioblastoma stem cells have a predilection for a perivascular niche. The green shows the stem cell in the wall of the blood vessels shown in red. And the idea is that by targeting blood vessels, you could indirectly also affect stem cell function potentially. So for multiple reasons, inhibiting angiogenesis may have a therapeutic effect glioblastomas. Most of the effort in glioblastomas has been focused on map. This is a humanized monoclonal antibody that binds VEGF, and by sequestering the ligand, it prevents it from activating the receptor and inducing angiogenesis. There have been a number of retrospective studies with map dating back to a pilot study by Virginia Stockman several years ago that showed for the first time that this regimen was safe and that the concerns about intracerebral hemorrhage were not realized. Subsequently, a number of studies showed very high response rates, ranging from 27 to 66%, as well as prolongation in six-month progression-free survival. Based on these retrospective studies, a number of prospective studies were mounted. The largest of this was the so-called BRAIN trial, published in the Journal of oncology uh, earlier in 2010. In this study, patients with glioblastomas in first or second relapse were randomized to bevacizumab alone or bevacizumab with TCAN. And The primary endpoint was six-month progression-free survival and radiographic response. The next slide shows the waterfall plot showing a really high response rate in these patients. Just to put this in perspective, Temozolomide, our best chemotherapy, 
has a response rate of 5%. The next slide is an example of a patient that we treated at Dana-Farber on this brain trial. The first scans show her at the time of recurrence in December 2006. The middle panel shows response to bevacizumab after six weeks, and she is still free of recurrence and continues to be follow-up in clinic, although she's no longer on, on the drug. So for some patients, long-term benefit is possible. The next slide summarizes the results of the brain study, as well as a study from the National Cancer Institute by Kreisel and her colleagues. The FDA-determined response rate from the brain study was 26%, and from the Kreisel study was 20%. And the FDA-determined median time to progression was about 4.2 months from the brain study and 3.9 months the Chrysler study. This slide shows the response rate from the brain study compared to historic controls, showing a significantly higher response rate. This slide summarizes the six-month progression-free survival data. The FDA determined six-month progression-free survival from the brain study was 36% and was just under 20% for the Chrysler study. And this shows the results of the brain study compared to historic controls of the 9 to 16% six-month PFS. The peritumor edema that is an important cause of morbidity in glioblastoma patients is caused primarily by VEGF. And by inhibiting VEGF, bevacizumab significantly reduces peritumor edema. And as a consequence, patients' need for steroid use significantly decreases. This shows the use of steroids in patients from the brain study showing that in almost every single patient, there was a decrease in the need for steroids. And so based on the increase in response rate, the improvement in six-month progression-free survival, and the decrease in steroid use and the clinical benefit, bevacizumab received accelerated approval for recurrent glioblastoma in early 2010. This next slide summarizes the major toxicities associated with bevacizumab in glioblastoma patients. Cerebral hemorrhage, which was something that many people were worried about, occurs at a low rate in these patients, in the order of 2 to 3%. There is a slightly increased risk of venous thromboembolism and bowel perforation, but overall this drug is actually a well-tolerated drug in glioblastoma patients. There is also significant interest in drugs that target the VEGF receptor. The best studied of these is a drug called sidurinib, which is a potent pan-VEGF receptor inhibitor. In a phase two study conducted at MGH and Dana-Farber, led by Dr. Batchelor, there were high response rates similar to those with bevacizumab and increased six-month progression-free survival. This next slide shows a patient that I treated showing significant reduction in contrast enhancement with time associated with a decrease in the peritumal edema. Based on these encouraging results, a phase three study was mounted in patients with recurrent glioblastoma. These patients were randomized to either sidurinib at 30 milligrams daily alone, sidurinib 20 milligrams daily with lomustine, or lomustine alone. The final results of this trial were reported over the past month, and although sidurinib showed activity, it did not meet its primary endpoint. The progression-free survival was somewhat increased with the use of sidurinib, but was not statistically significant. And similarly, with six-month progression-free survival, this was increased, especially
especially with a combination of sidernib with CCNU, it was not statistically significant. One of the issues that faces the field right now is how much anti-tumor activity these drugs really have. This next slide shows the results of a study in orthotopic uh, U87 tumors in mice treated with sidernib. And in this first panel, the use of sidernib significantly improves the survival of these animals. But in panel D, if you look at the effect of the drug on tumor size, it has no effect in reducing tumor size. So what's thought to happen is that, at least in this model, sidernib works primarily by reducing the edema. And because the cranium has a fixed volume reduction in it, cerebral edema will lead to an increase in survival of the animal. But the drug itself has no effect on tumor size. I think in patients, much of the benefit could also be because of the reduction in edema. Although there are some patients who benefit for a longer time, and, and there may also be a tumor, anti-tumor effect, but it's difficult to prove. So where do we go from here? There is a lot of data suggesting that inhibition of angiogenesis and by normalizing the blood vessels and potentially increasing delivery of chemotherapy and improving oxygenation, potentially improving the efficacy of radiation therapy. There's a lot of interest in combining these drugs with radiation therapy and temozolomide in newly diagnosed tumors. There are two large phase three trials looking at the addition of bevacizumab to radiation and temozolomide that are ongoing. And there are a number of phase two studies looking at the combination of various VEGF receptor inhibitors to radiation and temozolomide as well as other drugs such as selangitide and integrin inhibitor. The reality for our patients, however, is summarized on this slide. When a patient recurs and we treat them with bevacizumab, most of the time the tumor responds for an average of four to five months, but then the tumor will come back. And when the tumor comes back, what to do with it is a major therapeutic issue. In a study by Eudacea Quant at Dana-Farber, she looked at patients treated with bevacizumab and irinotecan. When patients are treated with this regimen, they have a response rate of 25% and a PFS6 of 33%, very similar to the results of the BRAIN study. When these patients recur, bevacizumab is continued and a different chemotherapy is tried. And with this switch, no patient responded and almost no patients were progression-free at six months. So it's very hard to treat these patients who progress on bevacizumab. And I think a number of other studies have now come out looking at different chemotherapy regimens and different targeted drugs. And so far, whatever chemotherapy drug you use in combination with bevacizumab or whatever targeted drug you use has not shown much benefit once you fail bevacizumab. So there's tremendous interest in understanding the mechanisms of resistance, in understanding why some patients never respond to the drug in the first place, so-called intrinsic resistance. We should be able to identify these patients so we don't expose them to an ineffective drug with side effects. And then there are patients who respond and then eventually relapse, developing what's called adaptive or evasive resistance. One of the mechanisms of adaptive resistance is the upregulation of other proangiogenic growth factors, such as fibroblast growth factor, angiopoietins, and efferent. In the study with sidernib by Dr. Batchelor, at recurrence, 
there was increase in fibroblast growth factor, stromo-derived growth factor 1L for another. So one strategy is to use drugs that inhibit both the VEGF receptor and also the fibroblast growth factor receptor. And a number of these drugs listed here are in clinical trials. There's also evidence that angiopoietin-2 might be an important resistance mechanism, and a number of peptidobodies that target angiopoietin-2 are in clinical trials. There are also other mechanisms of resistance, including the migration of bone marrow-derived monocytes to the tumor to produce vasculogenesis and angiogenesis. This is mediated by stromo-derived factor 1-alpha, amongst other things. And so inhibiting CXCR4 and CXCR7 might be a useful thing. And then in a subset of patients, there is increased tumor invasive. This slide shows the patient that I treated with sidernib that had a good response to the drug. About seven months later, the patient came back to see me and was very confused. But instead of having a big mass in the right parietal area, which is where her original tumor was, she had this fluffy enhancement. In the next panel on the flare image, you see that there is increased flare signal throughout much of the brain. This patient had essentially what's called gliomatosis, tumor everywhere. This is another patient that I treated, the panel on the right, that baseline. And then eight months later, if you look at the contrast enhanced image, the tumor appears to be under control. But in fact, if you look at the flare image, there's tumor crossing the corpus callosum into the left frontal lobe. So there's this non-enhancing tumor that is growing. What we think happens in these patients is that by inhibiting VEGF, we force the tumor cells to co-opt the existing blood vessels. They grow along the existing blood vessels, and then eventually they grow throughout the brain, give rise to gliomatosis. And there's preclinical data to support this. This slide summarizes two preclinical studies. The top panel, a shows controlled tumor with a smooth margin, and then B and C shows infiltrating tumor cells after the tumor was treated with anti-VEGF receptor antibody. And similarly, in the bottom panel, panel G shows smooth margins of a controlled tumor, and then the other panel shows the result of treatment with the VEGF receptor antibody. With infiltrating tumor cells, in panel I, there's tumor cells around blood vessels, in J, along blood vessels and in K, along blood vessels to the peel surface. There are also more recent studies that also show a similar phenomenon. If you inhibit VEGF in a subset of tumors, you will get increased invasion. Another phenomenon that has recently been described is the phenomenon of vasculogenic mimicry. This is the concept that the glioblastoma stem cells can develop into blood vessels. This next panel shows that these stem cells can develop these tubular structures that are like blood vessels and that these tumor cells may give rise to tumor blood vessels. This next slide shows in the middle panel cells that line the wall of the vessel looking like endothelium but having amplification of EGFR. EGFR is frequently amplified in glioblastoma cells but not in tumor endothelium. So these cells that look like endothelium are, in fact, tumor cells that line the blood vessels. And the thought is that perhaps when you inhibit VEGF, the tumor cells become blood vessels and compensate in this way. 
So there's tremendous interest in trying to combine drugs that target angiogenesis with drugs that target invasion, and some of them are listed in the next slide. These include drugs that target integrins, CXCR4, NOTCH, as well as uh, angiopoid 2 and others. One drug that has been of interest is a drug called XL184. This targets both the VEGF receptor and VET, which is important for invasion. And in a study presented at ASCO, this waterfall plot shows that there appears to be fairly significant activity, and a phase three trial with this drug is, being, uh, is underway. One of the problems with all these drugs that reduce contrast enhancement by inhibiting VEGF to make the vessels less leaky and there's less contrast coming out is that our whole response criteria has been made much more difficult. This uh, slide shows a patient who, by contrast enhancement, is stable, but on the flare images shows clearly non-enhancing progressive disease. Traditionally, we have used the McDonald criteria to look at contrast enhancement, but if the tumor is growing and is not enhancing, the McDonald criteria does not measure it at all. So based on this type of problem and the problems with pseudo-response, where the scans are better by the next day, the RANO criteria was recently proposed and published in JCO. RANO is the response assessment in neuro-oncology criteria. This deals with the issue of non-enhancing tumor as well as implementing a number of other criteria that makes the determination of response much more rigorous. So essentially, the RANO criteria is the measurement of contrast-enhancing tumor as well as non-enhancing tumor plus a number of other additions. And this is summarized on the table. So this is where we are in the treatment of glioblastomas. In the past, we have used conventional therapies, and when the patients recur, we treat them with a variety of agents that have not been very effective. The patients continue to progress, and eventually they die. With the availability of drugs like bevacizumab, when patients recur and we treat them, there is no doubt that the progression-free survival has increased, and the quality of life for these patients is often very good and the need for steroids is reduced. But when these patients recur, it's really hard to treat them and salvage them. And what we don't know is whether these drugs significantly improve the survival by very much, or if at all. Ultimately, antiangiogenic therapies will only have limited activity, and we'll have to combine them with cytotoxic treatment, immunotherapy, and perhaps agents that target tumor stem cells or tumor metabolism. There are also a number of other therapies that are being evaluated, including immunotherapy, viral gene therapy, as well as a number of other strategies that are summarized here. But I think right now, the most promising approaches are those that involve targeting various molecular pathways and stem cells, as well as angiogenesis. This concludes my presentation. I would like to thank you for participating today. And I hope you find the information that I presented useful to you in your practice.